Well, uh, last Wednesday night, uh, I went to sleep uh, praying uh, for the town I went to college in. Uh, I went to college in Shawnee, Oklahoma, at Oklahoma Baptist University. And on that Wednesday night, as I was going to sleep, uh, I'm sure many of them were not because a tornado had hit and was going across the highway at that time. The uh, state of Oklahoma had, I believe they they last said, at least nine tornadoes uh, that night. Uh, The worst one was an EF3, which is a pretty strong tornado uh, that hit in Cole, Oklahoma. Uh, They said that in Shawnee, they were dealing with what was at least an EF2, a very strong tornado. And uh, looking at the aftermath the next morning, uh, you could see if you just looked at that campus. Now, the good news and the thing to praise God for was that there were no casualties at the university and there were no injuries. And to my knowledge, the three deaths that happened in Oklahoma were not in Shawnee, although I could be wrong about that. But looking at the damage of the university, you could see the oldest building on campus, Shawnee Hall, which was built after the city donated the land to the school 113 years ago. The roof of that building was completely ripped off. I mean, there's not a bit of that roof left on the building. Uh, Rayleigh Chapel, uh, the the big chapel in the middle of campus, I used to say that I knew I was getting close uh, to campus when I could see on the highway, from the highway, I-40, you could see the steeple of Rayleigh Chapel. It was, I believe, the highest point in that county. And uh, one of the windows, if not more, I only saw one of them, of the steeple was completely crashed in. Uh, You could actually see in one corner of the building where it just looked like the, the roof was peeled back, like a can of aluminum almost, just peeled back and had a hole in it. Uh, There was another part of that building where the ceiling had sunken in. Uh, The first chapel in the state of Oklahoma, the first Baptist chapel, I should say, in the state of Oklahoma, called Stubblefield Chapel, a little traditional white one-room church building, had been moved to the campus some years ago, and the steeple of that chapel was completely torn off the building after this uh, tornado. So although we praise God for the safety, uh, we still kind of mourn that, uh, you know, you know, I had the privilege to preach in both of those chapels, and it kind of breaks my heart a little bit to see the damage done to them, and not to mention to the rest of the campus. You know, in times like that, I just think that the overwhelming feeling of that college campus, of that university, and of that community is one of disruption and fear and anxiousness. You know, even if you go beyond that campus, the campus, Oklahoma Baptist University, wasn't the worst thing hit in that town. I I saw one picture of one of the gyms for one of the public schools where you could see the gym floor in its entirety because the entire building was gone. Uh, It was just a gym floor and rubble around it. And so right now, since Wednesday, uh, you know, there's been disaster relief, there's been volunteers, there's been a lot of help, and there's been a lot of prayer, which is appreciated, I'm sure, but still you can understand that there wouldn't be a feeling of peace on that campus like you sometimes felt before. I remember one time, I think it was the end of my second semester, my freshman year, and I was walking across campus a little bit early to go to my last final, and most of the students were gone at that point. I just remembered the the utmost feeling of peace across that campus. Uh, that, That place was such a sweet 
uh, part of my life and my uh, development as a Christian and as a follower of Christ. And so I would say that most of my time there was marked by a great deal of peace, a great deal of what the Hebrew Bible calls shalom, not just peace in the sense of no conflict, but peace in the sense of wholeness and completeness, that, that all things were just kind of right. And so I know right now that that may not be the predominant feeling on the campus as students worry about their belongings that were in dorm rooms that have great damage, as students worry about their semester. It, it was noteworthy that every student on that campus not only went through this tornado, but all of them, most of the, the, the last two, the juniors and the seniors, would have all been through COVID as college students there. And many of the ones after them would have felt the effects either in high school as they were graduating or on that campus. So they've been through a great deal. And this morning, I think it's worth noting that true peace doesn't come from the fact that all things are okay. True peace comes from the God of peace. True peace comes from the God who alone can give us peace that surpasses all of our understanding. And so this morning I want to look here at this passage that we just read in Philippians and see three specific ways in which Paul says that peace can be promoted among the church and among the individuals in the church and among the community that they exist in. And in all these ways we see uh, that peace, peace can be brought about even in situations where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In the church in Philippi, the church was dealing with an inner conflict, which we'll see brought to light a little bit more for us this morning in the passage that we read. It was dealing with external conflict in the community as there was persecution or, or oppression or misunderstanding in the, the place they were in in Philippi, that city. And beyond that, there was fear, even that Paul had, that there were going to be false teachers to come in and, and cause more issues. And so in all these ways, this was a church not at peace. And so Paul, in this near the end of this letter, is going to try to deal with a little bit of the conflict and give them a little bit of the tools uh, to deal with these things in the future. So the first thing that Paul uh, shows is that gospel partnership promotes peace. Gospel partnership promotes peace. We talked, even from the first, uh, first week we spent in Philippians, we talked about this idea of gospel partnership, an ideal of a partnership that goes beyond just being friends or acquaintances or co-workers, but extends to the, very, the most intimate things in life. That is, our grave sin before a holy God and our great salvation purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is this kind of partnership that Paul works out in verses 2 through 4. You see, he says, I entreat, this is verse 2, Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, you might not recognize it. Euodia and Syntyche are names. Uh, you may not have heard those ones recently. I don't know any of you that named your children Euodia or Syntyche, and uh, probably for the best, I might say. But he tells these two uh, women, we know by these names that they are women in the church, prominent women in the church because they were worth naming, to agree in the Lord. There's some kind of conflict going on between these women that caused, I think, and colored a lot of how Paul writes this letter. He writes this letter 
again and again pointing them to the need for humility, the need to lay aside their own opinions and desires, and to fight for the the opinions and desires of the other person in the room. Uh, Because they all need to submit to one another and to love one another. True humility, I've said this before, does not come through making everyone agree with you. and In fact, it comes from being willing to be disagreed with. It comes from being able to look to the other person with a different opinion, with a different perspective, and submit to them in love like Christ. Now, we don't know what the issue was. We really don't. There's actually not a whole lot of indication what it is. Perhaps some of the the concerns about the teaching in the church are connected with these two women, but, but it's not clear. And, and it's noteworthy that Paul doesn't say, I entreat Yodia to agree with Syntyche, or he says, I entreat Syntyche to agree with Yodia. Instead, he says, I entreat both of these women to agree in the Lord. So maybe it was a personal squabble, who knows? Maybe it was a matter of serious doctrine. We're not really sure. But what we do know is, whatever it was, Paul didn't think there was either clearly a right answer or that one of these women was clearly right. Or else, we know how Paul can be straightforward with people. If you don't know about that, just go read the letter to the Galatians. He has harsh words for them. He's just straight up with them, doesn't hold anything back. And here, this whole letter is very friendly probably indicating that it's not the most serious of matters. It's not a gospel matter. If it was, this letter would probably read very differently. But here we get to these two key women who are having this disagreement, and he tells them to agree in the Lord, implying that either their disagreement, he couldn't clearly pronounce the winner, or that maybe they were both wrong. So he entreats them to agree in the Lord, and he actually asks for help. He says, yes, verse 3, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, true companion's an interesting uh, phrase there. Uh, people have guessed out the wazoo. I mean, who that might be. But, but the end point is that true companion is a masculine noun there, and it probably refers, most likely, to someone that Paul has worked with and had a close relationship who is in Philippi. It's probably not uh, some of the other people, Epaphroditus or Timothy, we've already seen mentioned in the letter, because they're not there yet, and they're with Paul now, so it's kind of an odd thing for him to write it in the letter. He could just tell them, hey, help these women out. Uh, It's probably, you know, some people even conjecture, maybe it's Luke or one of his other close followers who's already in Philippi. We just don't know. But we do know that this person was a close companion to Paul, who Paul asked to help these women. He doesn't want to just leave it up to them being able to do it on their own. They need help. He says, it's these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. What what defines these women to Paul is that they have been gospel partners with him. They have been on the front lines. They have been side by side in the work of the gospel in the teaching and explaining of the, to, to go out and to tell others the gospel. They have been a part of the ministry. Maybe they supported it financially or just with their service. We don't know. But what we know is that what's going on here is there is a disagreement. There's a disagreement in the church worth naming the people who are disagreeing in this letter that Paul thinks can be reconciled if they would come to an agreement in the Lord and if they would get help from other people in the church. See, gospel partnership promotes p- 
peace because when you're in a gospel partnership, two things are true. One, you have a partnership that goes beyond any other kind. You are united in Christ. The gospel has brought you together such that you are siblings of one family under God. Uh, You don't get to pick the family you're born into, but it's also true you don't get to pick the family you're born again into. When you're born again, you're in God's family, whether you like it or not, whether you show up or don't. And so when you're born again, here we are in this family, and this gospel partnership that unites us in Christ promotes peace. But it's also true that if your partnership is one based on the gospel, then you are both people in need of mercy, grace, and the loving kindness of God. And if you think you need mercy and grace and loving kindness from God, how much more do you need it from the people in the room with you who also are people who need mercy and grace and loving kindness? See, something that ruins gospel partnerships is when people start believing they don't need the gospel. When people believe, well, I have moved on from that. I get that I was a sinner, but now I am completely good. I get that I made mistakes, but now I am moral. I get that I needed the church, but now I can move on. It's when we start thinking that we, have got, we are better than the gospel, that we are better than everyone else, that the gospel partnership falls apart. Because although we might be united in Christ, we don't recognize our need for him. It's only in the fact that me or you or anyone else in this room recognizes that we are sinners. On our own, we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we can have a partnership where we can actually come not just to agree to disagree, but where we can come to agree in the Lord. It is only in that kind of partnership where we can see this kind of unity take place. And so we can't give up that it's not just a partnership, it's not just a a business arrangement, it's not just a contract. It is the very essence, the very essence of who we are. We are gospel partners. And that means on the one hand that we are united in Christ. It means on the other that we are sinners in need of a Savior, so we need to be kind to one another and forgiving of one another. But it also means, it also means that as gospel partners, we have to do gospel work. We have to work to advance the gospel among this world. So we don't know exactly what the disagreement is, but it says, he talks about the, the rest of these fellow workers who's, in verse 3, whose names are in the book of life. Now, if you've not heard this before, I'm sure you, many of you have, it was an old Jewish tradition that carried on into the New Testament, into Christian life, that on the final day, when the, the day of judgment came, we would be, uh, all people would be judged, and that there are some whose names would be written in the book of life, and those would be the ones who are saved on that day. So notice Paul sees a disagreement between these two women, yet he does not doubt their salvation. Instead, he says, these women, like all of my other fellow workers, their names are written in the book of life. He does not doubt that. He does not doubt that. But, but he recognizes that this disagreement, that this fracture in the relationship, this fissure that exists here, could grow and could grow and could fester and grow if it's not dealt with now. So, Like a good surgeon, Paul says, step into this situation and let's deal with it. I don't know 
that anyone really understands the call of God and the call of being a church member and, and of following Christ as a member of his church if we are unwilling for someone to step in our lives and try to help us follow Jesus. See, it sounds nice to say, well, if you join the church, you will have a community of people around you, and, and they're going to take care of you, and they're going to love you unconditionally, and they're going to point you to Jesus. That sounds really good until you do something really stupid, and one of them comes along and says, you know that was really stupid, and then all of a sudden that person isn't your, your church member that you love, it's your enemy. The person who just doesn't get it, they're judging you. They don't understand you. They don't really love you. They just want to get up in your business. But that's the kind of community that, that God calls us to. A community where people can get into each other's lives with the kind of intimacy where they can say, I am concerned about this. I'm concerned about you, and I'm concerned about this situation. Now, we do that with gentleness, we do that with respect, we do that with love and kindness, but that doesn't mean we don't do it. It's exactly because we have the adjectives to describe what we're doing, or the adverbs, that is, that we do it kindly, that we do it graciously, that we do it mercifully, just because we can describe it, that tells us that that's something we ought to be doing. Do we really understand the gospel if we're unwilling to let the gospel change who we are? If we're unwilling to let the community of people who are aligned with the gospel change who we are? I've been asked before, how do you deal with conflict in churches? And, and so there's, there's kind of two answers as a pastor. The simple thing is, as an individual, as an individual, if someone has sinned against me, well, I'm just going to follow Matthew 18. I'm going to go to them and talk to them. It's a little bit different when there's conflict within the church that doesn't directly involve you. And the comfortable thing as a pastor is to walk away and say, you know, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to, not going to worry about it. Now, the truth is, sometimes that is exactly what we ought to do. Pray for them. Walk away. But at least for pastors, and I don't mean just myself, I mean all the elders, there is a sense in which we have to maybe get a little bit more involved than we want to. And that's what Paul is asking his true companion to do here. He's saying there is Yodia and Sinski, and they need to come to an agreement my true companion, help them. Help them. So how do you deal with conflict in a church? Well, I've told people before, you know, well, you just you go to that person, you hear them out, you ask them questions, you find out as much as you can, you pray with them, and then you say, would you be okay sitting down with me and the other person and talking about this? Because the problem in the church that we often have is we want to ignore problems instead of address them which is fine until those problems keep being ignored. Eventually, they don't stay little problems. They never do. I've never seen a small problem stay a small problem. And so Paul is actually saying, if you want peace in your church, you don't ignore the situations or the divisions or the problems. See, a lot of people think they can bring about peace and unity in the church by ignoring all the differences. Well, if we just ignore it, we just walk away, it'll be fine. Paul's telling us, no, that's not what you do. When there are divisions like this, you step in. And you make sure an agreement has come to. You make sure that people realize that what they are doing, what they are doing is, as partners in the gospel, is trying to advance the gospel and live for Christ. And if their divisions among themselves are keeping them from doing that, they need to be dealt with. Paul recognizes that peace doesn't come from ignoring problems. It comes from addressing them head on. And that doesn't mean you get confrontational. It doesn't mean you act like a bully. In fact, if you're doing those things, you're actually causing more problems, not getting rid of them. 
But with love and kindness and graciousness, we have to sometimes deal with issues. And if you're not prepared for that as a church member, then you may not be prepared for the gospel, which says, which says that you're a sinner. If you can't recognize that you're a sinner that sometimes needs a little help, you're not going to make it very far in the church, but you're also not going to make it very far with God. Because your good works, you looking squeaky clean, you doing all the right things, doesn't please God. What pleases Him is when we turn away from our life of sin and turn toward Christ in faith. So if we're unwilling to, to have gospel relationships in the church, well, we may be unprepared for the gospel relationship of Christ, in which we have to recognize. We have to recognize. We have to recognize that we are sinners. So gospel partnership within the church can promote peace within the church. But we also have to look at our own hearts, our own issues, and we see in verses 4 through 7 that Paul is going to point them to one way in which they can deal with a lack of peace in their life. And this is grateful prayer. This is thankful prayer. This is prayer with thanksgiving. So he begins in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. He's not saying rejoice in the Lord when it's convenient, rejoice in the Lord when things are going well. He says rejoice in the Lord always, and as if he expects them to go, that makes no sense, Paul. We can't do that. That's a little bit too much. He then says, again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul is pointing them to the utter need for joy, for prayer, and for thanksgiving. We see those three come together a lot, especially if you go read the Psalms. You will see rejoicing, you will see prayer, you will see thanksgiving. And so Paul is calling on them that no matter what their circumstances, they need to rejoice. Now that doesn't mean you put on a fake smile and act happy. That means you rejoice how? In the Lord. See, the problem for us as individuals is we are tempted not to rejoice in the Lord, but to rejoice in our good circumstances. So that when things are going well, we rejoice in those things. But when they're going poorly, we have nothing to rejoice for. But he tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. How can we do that? Well, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The, the nature of Jesus Christ does not change. The character of Jesus Christ does not change. The sufficiency of Christ's blood for our sins does not change. Such that if we rejoice in Him, our rejoicing is not dependent on changing circumstances in our life, but it's dependent on one who is steady and consistent and does not change. How do you rejoice always? You rejoice in the Lord. Then you can rejoice always. And he tells them to let your... Now, if you're using the English Standard Version like I am, it says reasonableness. This is a... It's kind of strange. It doesn't happen a lot with the ESV. But every now and then, there's an extremely minor view on a translation they take. And this is one of those. Almost everyone else, every other translation you see will say graciousness or gentleness. So let your... I'm going to say gentleness be known to everyone. A good reminder in a time when he's telling them to confront problems in the church. Let, gentle, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, reminding them that the Lord is coming again. So he says, do not be anxious about anything. Now he says that, which implies, right, that what are they? They're anxious about 
something. Maybe they're anxious about everything. And that's understandable. I feel like we all get a little bit more anxious, a little bit more worried, a little bit more stressed, a little bit more whatever than we should be. And the scripture calls us not to be anxious. Why? Because we're getting anxious over these small things in the world. And some of them are bigger things compared to others. But in comparison to God and his control over all things, they are all small things. So he's telling them not to be anxious about anything. Now, one way to get anxious really quick, one way to get anxious really quick is to have a long list of things you need or feel you need from God and pray for those things. Now, you're asking, okay, wait, 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 wait. You're saying prayer can lead to anxiety? Well, if you pray like this, Lord, I really need a new house. So, Lord, I pray that you'd provide me a new house. Lord, I really need a new car. The old one's getting beat up. I really need a new car. Lord, I really need a, a, a husband or a wife. Lord, provide me with a husband. If you list out all of the things just simply, Lord, I need this. Give me this. Lord, I need this. Give me this. You know what you're going to start thinking? I need a lot, and I'm not getting a lot, and I'm not getting any of it from God. So how does he tell us to pray? Paul tells us to pray with and, and, and speak to God with supplication, that is, asking him for things with thanksgiving. What's that mean? That means saying, Lord, I need a new house, or I'd like a new house. If it's in your will, give me a new house. But I am so thankful for the room of my own that I have right now, the, the roof I have over my head, the way that you've taken care of me so far. Well, if you pray like that, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the anxiety isn't as much of a problem. Now, because we're praying, not recognizing that we have a bunch of needs that aren't being met, but we pray realizing that God has already met many of our needs. And the reality for us, the reality is that if Everything that you have, no matter how little you have, is already much more than you deserve. No matter how little you have, it is much more than you deserve. The scripture tells us that by nature, by ourselves, without Christ, we are children of wrath. It tells us that we are, apart from Christ, vessels destined for destruction. On our own, what do we merit? What do we earn? We earn, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve hell everlastingly. So everything we have, no matter how little it is, is much more than we deserve. No matter how little, no matter how worthless it may be according to the world standards, it is much more than we deserve. First and foremost, our salvation is far much more than we deserve. We can only praise and thank God for his graciousness because we couldn't get that on our own. We couldn't earn that on our own. It is completely a free gift from his love and his kindness toward us. But it's not just that. It's everything that we have is more than we deserve. So we must go to the Lord praying, asking him for things. It's okay to ask God. It's okay to ask him for things and ask him for provision. But we need to keep it in its proper context. Do it with thanksgiving. A heart that is at peace with itself and with others and with God is a heart that is thankful for the things that God gives it. 
And he says, if you, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, verse 7, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace of God is far beyond our understanding. We cannot understand the peace of God. We've never truly, really experienced it like we want to, like we ought to, but it, that peace of God, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the promise, the, that, that our prayers to God, our thankful prayers to God, our grateful prayers to God, promotes peace. And finally, in verse 8 and 9, so far we've seen how gospel partnership promotes peace within the church, how grateful prayer promotes peace within our hearts, but now we see godly living. Godly living promotes peace. Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He's saying, Really, actually, on the front end, he's saying godly thinking promotes peace, and then godly living promotes peace. Now, I wish I was one of these. Maybe you've seen some old sermons, probably not even from the last century, but maybe from centuries before, in which a pastor might take verse 8. And let's see for a minute. It says, whatever's true, that's one. Whatever's honorable, two. Just, pure, lovely, commendable, that's six. Maybe even if there's any excellence, seven. If there's anything worthy of praise, eight. And, and preach eight different sermons, probably being twice as long as the sermon I would preach on a Sunday morning, on just each of those words. Now, I wish I could do that. You would not like me to do that, and I can't do that. But I do want to still go through these words briefly, very briefly. Whatever is true, first and foremost, it is important that it's true. The reality is, no matter where it comes from, wherever you hear it, all truth is God's truth. God is the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. So all truth that we find, no matter where we find it, is God's truth. So all truth is God's truth. So whatever is true, we think on those things. Whatever is honorable, whatever is respectable, whatever is pleasing, whatever is set apart for God, whatever is noble, whatever is just. Now just is interesting because just could also be translated right. And actually, although the word uh, simply means just, it brings about the idea that you may have heard before, just or right or righteous. So whatever is righteous, whatever is honorable to God, whatever is righteous according to his standard, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, things that you can recommend, things that you can see the love of God in, things that are pure and holy, All of these things, it's interesting, Paul is taking a list of words that would have been common to the Philippians, words they would have heard Roman philosophers or Greek philosophers talking about as virtues, things that are commendable to to have, character that is commendable, but Paul is now taking them and transforming them and using them so that they are under the Lord. He's taking these terms that the Philippians might know, and he's really, he's gospelizing them. He's making them like the gospel. He's making them fit within the Christian worldview. Why? Because all truth is God's truth. Whether a Greek pagan or a Roman pagan said it, if it's true, it's God's truth. 
And so he talks about all these things, and he says, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. So again, it's not just these generic ideas. It's things worthy of praise. Think about these things. Now, Paul certainly does not have in mind the Andy Griffith show. See, you've probably heard this verse before. And you've probably interpreted, and I think you wouldn't be wrong in in getting this idea, although I'm not sure this is the main point, that really what Paul is talking about is wholesome things. Set your mind on wholesome things. Think about wholesome things. I know a lot of you, and I, I know many people who think like this, you'd say, well, the stuff on TV these days is just garbage. It's been garbage for decades. But the Andy Griffith Show, I just rewatch that all the time. Andy Griffith is wholesome. But that's not exactly what Paul's talking about. One, Paul certainly wasn't talking about the Andy Griffith Show because that was about you know, 1,900 years later. But two, he's not talking about the Andy Griffith Show because his point isn't just think about wholesome things. He's saying think about those things that are of God, that are not just excellent, but are worthy of praise. He's saying set your mind on these things that are above. Set your mind on godly things. Not just wholesome, godly things. So it's this godly way of thinking that Paul is trying to promote. And by promoting it among the Philippians, they'll promote peace within their own ranks, but also to the watching world. Because in a world that is so far from the morality of God, you can see the salt and light of a Christian community that lives out that morality, that sets their minds on things above, that practices these things that they have learned from Paul, that they have received from Paul, that they have heard from Paul, and that they have seen him live by example. So we see that godly living promotes peace. In circumstances in which we could choose to live in an ungodly way and play into the divisions and fight for our rights, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Think about these things. Practice these things. Live this way because it promotes peace. How is that? He says in verse 9, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. This is the promise of Philippians 4, 2 through 9. The promise is this. The God of peace, the one true living God, who is a God of peace, a God of shalom, of wholeness, of completeness, of all things being right, the God of peace will give the peace of God to his people. The God of peace will give the peace of God to his people. Are you one of his people? Are you willing to live according to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus? Are you willing to set your mind on things that are above, things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, with any excellence, anything worthy of worship? Are you willing to think about these things and practice these things? Are you willing to devote yourself to prayer? A good test of whether you're a Christian who believes that God is in control of all things is if you're a Christian who prays. Because if you're not, I'm not sure that you believe that God controls all things. Are you willing to pray, and not just pray asking God to change your circumstances, but thank God for your circumstances? Because even those that the world intends for evil, God may intend for your good. Are you willing to join a gospel community, a church, and joining gospel partnership, where people may step on your toes a little bit? And you know what? 
you may be a bad dancer who needs your toes stepped on a little bit. Okay? That may just be the way that God intends for you to learn how he intends for you to live. And are you willing in that church and in that partnership not just to be content with sitting in a room and hearing the word of God and hearing the gospel, but are you willing to walk out those doors and live that gospel and speak that gospel to your neighbors? If you are, then you have this promise. The God of peace will give the peace of God to his people. Let's pray.